They'll tell your story, but only if they've heard your story. And this book is an attempt to help people leave behind for their loved ones what their loved ones really will cherish and want and need, which is their love, their wisdom, their values, their life lessons. My father had the perfect Yiddish expression for every situation, mostly a double entendre that was really filthy because that was him. <laughs> but that I carry that with me. Hello, friends. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. And in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. My guests and I explore the expansiveness and, well, pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief, actually multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet, individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate. And that's causing us all harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief one conversation at a time. And I'm so glad you're joining me. Oh, friends, I'm so thrilled to be bringing you my conversation with Rabbi Steve Leader. Steve is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. He's the author of five books. And in our conversation today, we explore his latest, For You When I'm Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. We explored so much from the wisdom we gain in the wake of loss to the most important gifts we can give others, both in our lives and in our deaths. Spoiler alert, it's not our money, our record collections, or anything tangible. It's our stories. He's learned so much from his own personal losses, yes, and from the decades he spent in his role as a rabbi about what it is our loved ones will want from us when we're gone. It's such a generative and thought-provoking conversation. I can't wait for you to listen. Welcome, Steve, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. I'm really honored to be with you. I really mean that. And I, I told you before we started recording, you have the best title of any podcast ever. Y'all, I did not pay him to say that or anything like that. <laughs> I have to say, even people who don't have the same appreciation for vulgarity that I do, whenever they hear that title or see it on a t-shirt, you, you know, wherever they hear it, everybody, regardless of their sort of anything is like, Yes. Right on. It's just yep. like a very true, it's a truism about grief. Yep. So, but part of what I'm trying to do in the show and we're part of what I hope we're going to unpack today even um, is the more we have honest conversations about what grief really is, about what are the sources of grief are, the more we expand our understanding that grief is more than just sad feelings, that grief comes from more than death, loss, et cetera. In some ways, grief will feel less sneaky. It's still sneaky because it's nonlinear and it's messy. But I think part of the reason we experience grief as so sneaky is because we live in a pretty grief, what I call grief illiterate world. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what makes it sneaky because we have this idea of what it should be. And then. Well, yes. And I would say, it, listen, I, 
I think it's also partly that we live in a grief literate world also. Tell me more about that. I'll tell you what I mean about that. I have no idea how old you are, but I know enough not to ask. I I'm am 52 next month or in, okay. yeah, next so month. I'm 62. I'm 10 years older than you are. And my generation was the first and you know, you're a half generation behind to be raised under the the tutelage and thinking of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yeah. And my generation was in that sense literate about grief. Everyone read it. Except. <laughs> right. But the problem is yeah. that, and the, her book was more sophisticated than the title, but anytime you say the five stages of, yeah. you are implying that something is, is a linear process. And that there's an end. Right. Yeah. And that there's a right way and a wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we so, have really yeah. taken it and sort of applied our Western capitalistic pull yourself up by your bootstraps thinking and just said like, oh, well, that's a nice, neat little thing. Right. And, Let's just and so I felt literate about grief, mm. but I was misinformed. Yeah. And I think, and, and, and sneaky is the perfect word. Yeah. Because if um, sneaky means nonlinear, yeah. means unexpected. Yeah. Means hiding in, in the basement of our psyche, yeah. pounding on the ceiling with a broomstick, you know? Exactly. And hiding in our bodies because yes. we embody our grief too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and that I think is, um, that's part of the reason sneaky is such a perfect word because it, it immediately obliterates the idea that it's predictable and linear. Yeah. And that we should have, because we should all over ourselves in our grief all the time, and that we should have seen it all coming, or we should know how to behave or how to feel. or Right. But right? if you accept that it's sneaky, then it's, you know, it's a yeah. dance. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> right? love that. It's a game yeah. of hide and go seek. Yeah. And um, that's part of why I think it's such a great title is that yeah. you're, you are acknowledging from the get-go yeah. that uh, this this is a game of emotional and physical hide and seek. Yeah, for the rest of our lives. For the rest of our lives, and we develop our skills, and we can have other th- you know our lives expand around our grief. But yeah, I think if we can, I, my work a lot is just sort of normalizing the complexity um, of our grief, and that and that means we can then give ourselves permission to be with ourselves in whatever state we are in our grief. And by the way. Um, be better at showing up for other people in their grief, which we're going to dive into today because this is much of what you've done, of course, as a rabbi all these years. Yeah. Well, yeah. And interestingly enough, my, not the book we're going to discuss mostly today, but the previous book, the beauty of what remains was really in essence, an apology, my apology for Everything I thought I knew and therefore taught as a rabbi for the first 33 years of my career, and I have a very large congregation of about 10,000 people, so I had a lot, I I spent a lot of time with families and with the dying and at funerals and all of that and counseling people about grief, and, and I thought... I knew what I was doing and I thought I knew what I was talking about. Yeah. And then my father died. Yeah. 
And I realized that so much of what I believed and had been teaching was just shy of the real truth. Yeah. This you is- know, there's this Yiddish expression, which I love, which is a half truth is a whole lie. Mm. Yes. And my, my understanding of, of grief, <clears throat> because it was extensive, but nevertheless vicarious. Yeah. It was full of half truths. Yeah. And therefore, a whole it was a lie. lie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I wish there was another way to learn the real truth. I wish there was another ticket in. I know. Uh, but experiencing it ourselves is the only way. It is. I think it is. And I think we can suffer less, especially early on, if we're surrounded by people who have spoken honestly and and authentically. And I got so captivated in diving into the conversation, but you bring this point up quickly. uh, You bring this point up poignantly is that at the beginning of every conversation with my guests over the years, um, I ask I'm always trying to get us to unpack or uncover where we learn sort of our grief beliefs from Um, back to our conversation about sort of the culture that we learned. And I am going to ask you to think about an early loss that you experienced in childhood could be a death loss, could be some other. And how were the adults in your lives modeling grief? So what do you think you learned back then about what grief should or shouldn't look like? I, I learned, I remember it very, very precisely. There were two, There are two experiences that are indelible from my very, very early childhood. I'm going to guess the first was when I was about four years old. And I had a great grandfather. uh, And we used to visit our great grandma and great grandpa every, not every, but many Sundays. And my great grandfather ended up in a nursing home and he was dying. And I'm one of five kids. I'm the fourth of five. My parents brought all five of us to the nursing home, essentially to say goodbye to our great grandpa. Mm. And I kind of understood it and I kind of didn't. Yeah. But what I did understand was when I, when I held his hand, I noticed how thin and brittle his skin had become yeah. because he was kind of a gruff, strong guy. He smoked yeah. a pipe, you know, he rocked in his chair. He didn't give a shit about anything or anything. Bigger than life kind of yeah. guy. Yeah. 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 And he was so, um, dehydrated yeah. in every meaning, in every sense of yeah. the word. Yeah. And I remember that. And I remember thinking to myself, I I guess this is what it means to be old and dying. We dry up. Mm. And the second was my grandmother's funeral. This was on my father's side and I was probably five or six. And my parents rightly brought me to the funeral. And I remember only my Auntie Gita my father's sister, wailing. Mm. And it was the first time I had ever heard crying that was wailing. I'd never heard it before. And 
it it made a very deep impression on me. It didn't really scare me. It surprised me, but it did indicate to me that this kind of loss was a completely different order of magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. That this was something in the gut. Because my Auntie Gita was like the funniest, most frivolous. She was married like 50 times. I mean, she was like the like bat- party. Yeah. Yeah. And she was wailing. And I just, that put me on notice that, oh boy, this. This is different. This is something different. This is a level of suffering that I have never seen before or heard before. Yeah. So those are my earliest childhood memories. Now, I think the, the, the beautiful and positive common denominator was that my parents exposed us to it. I was just about to say that. Exactly. Right. They did not shy away thinking because so many, I just you know spoke with Michelle Horde recently and so many parents think, of course, that they're protecting, you know, protecting the child. And they're really, they're really protecting themselves, of course. Exactly. (laughs) Well, yeah. And reminder, our parents did the best they could. And then we do the best we can if we become parents. And then our kids are going to tell us how we did it wrong. FYI. There's always cognitive dissonance with parents. And and you don't have enough time for me to get into my parents' shortcomings. Okay. (laughs) But (laughs) so maybe another episode. Yeah. And I'd have to pay you $300 an hour. (laughs) There's that. But they're that they got right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Um, And just, you know, in case you're a new listener dropping into the show, and if you haven't heard this before, I really ask that question because whether we've ever talked about grief or been through a profound loss, we have grief beliefs. They have come to us from the explicit and implicit messages that we've gained from family, friends, teachers, culture, TV, you know, whatever. So my invitation to ask all of us to explore that, I do that with myself, I teach at the University of Texas, I ask my students to do that, is to just really make visible, what are my grief beliefs? And are they serving me in my time of grief? I mean, I like people to do it before they hit a profound loss themselves. But if not, when you're in the midst of your own loss, are those grief beliefs serving me or are they harming me? And we're never going to- Definitely, whatever they are, they're not accurate. Then they're not accurate, but we can have some really misleading shoulds or expectations or false, you know, as we were talking about, like, oh, I just have to move through. I'm going to get to denial and then I'm going to get to, you know. Yeah, I think you learn pretty quickly. You know, I've always wanted to write a book called How to Have Your Second Child First. (laughs) Right. It's a it's a great title. That is a great title. You guys on records. Steve's got that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I have that. But you can't write that book. Yeah. Yeah. You just can't. Yeah. You can only learn certain things through experience. You can't Walking. learn to swim from a book or a videotape or a movie. Exactly. You have to be in the water. Yeah. And it you really can. helps to have someone who's been in there a while ahead of you. Exactly. And that was your point, which I think is such yeah. a powerful one, is that once you enter this club, I know that my father's death made me a better person a better father, a better husband, a better rabbi. Yeah. In a way I could never have become better any other way. Yeah. I mean it really grounds us in our sort of collective humanity and that we are we all walk through some you know some some version of this. I mean I say all the time 100% guaranteed you know, in this life, you're going to experience something like this. And we separate ourselves in so many ways. And I and there are many kinds of death, right? There's, and there's, many. there's 
the death, first of all, within death itself, there's the death of a child. I always say, you know, all deaths are sad, but they're not all tragic. Yeah. But some of them are tragic, and I see plenty of that. Yes. But there, as you know, there are deaths. There's the death of a dream. There's the death of a marriage. Um, death ability, you know, in your body, catastrophic injury, chronic illness. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly yeah. right. And fertility. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and there is a moment where, we all realize we are going to lose the race against time. Yeah. 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 And it can happen at any, any moment. I'll tell you, I've said this on other podcasts, but it's such a powerful idea. I'm going to repeat it. When I was a young student, I was living in Jerusalem and I went to hear a lecture by the youngest child to survive Auschwitz, who was then elderly. Yeah. And he was a rabbi. That's kind of irrelevant. The first thing he said in his talk was there were no children in Auschwitz. Yeah. The moment you entered those gates, you became an adult. So we, we have our eyes forced wide open in many different ways and, at, and in many different ages and stages of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That's beautiful and profound. So you talked about sort of from the beauty, what remains was sort of your open letter to like, you know, acknowledging that maybe you didn't know, um, you didn't really fully appreciate or understand um, grief and the advice or support that you've given others. And then this book uh, for you when I'm gone, which sorry, mine's all scruffed up because as you oh, all don't can be see, sorry. I, I, I hand, I handhold it and everything, but it's a pretty title too, pretty cover. I mean, um, I'll drop the link in my show notes for the episode. And if you follow me on socials, Lisa Kefauver for MSW, I'll link it theirs too. So tell me a little bit about the journey to this book. It, the subtitle is 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. And if we had like two hours, I would go through each chapter with everybody. It's so amazing. So we're going to hit a few highlights. But tell me the impetus. Tell the listeners the impetus for this book coming to be. I wrote this book because of something that was in the previous book and a relatively minor component of the previous book. <clears throat> so The Beauty of What Remains was, was a 55,000 word book. There, there, within it, maybe 500 words about this concept uh, called an ethical will or a legacy letter. And those 500 words is what seemed to captivate, one of the few things that captivated interviewers and, you know, all of that the most. And it was covered the least in the book. And so I realized I really should explore this for people because most people have never heard of it. Most people have never done it. And I've been doing it with families in a different sort of way for more than three decades. And I figured I have figured out one way to unlock a person's story in a meaningful way, not their biography, their story. Very and, different. Very yeah. Different. So you know, I used to teach a, a course at the seminary called homiletics, which is just a fancy word for how to write sermons, wedding addresses, and eulogies. And when I would get to the eulogy section, the first thing I wrote on the board was, "An obituary is the facts; a eulogy is the truths." Mm. 
the facts of our lives are generally not very telling. Like if I said to you, I was born on June 3rd, 1960 in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, and I went to Aquila Elementary School. That's all true. That's a fact. Yeah. But it doesn't tell you anything about me other than my age. It doesn't tell you how you lived your life. That's right. Now, if I was to say to you, when I was a little boy and the, the bitterness of my parents' marriage spilled over yet again into our family life and, and my father's harshness and anxiety was lurking behind every corner, I would get in the canoe and go out onto the Minnehaha Creek that ran behind my house and I would just escape for hours on the creek. And I still escape for hours into nature or days or weeks. I'm talking to you right now from a cabin in Joshua Tree in the desert. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Now you know a truth about me. Yeah. They're very different. Yeah. And there's and, there's an essence to you and a quality to you and to how you lived your life and what shaped you as you. Yes. Not the, not the sort of facts. Yeah. yeah. Muriel Ruckheiser, the poet, she said, uh, the world is not made up of atoms. It is made up of stories. Yeah. And it's so true. It's so true. I mean, I trained in narrative therapy, so you're preaching to the choir here okay, a little bit. Well, I mean, yeah, and, yeah. And so I wrote this book, these, these 12 questions, which I write a little essay about each question and answer it for myself. And then I invited a, in a very diverse group of people, about 40 different people, to answer the questions. And then I curated the best of it. Yeah. Um, and my editor at, when she read the first draft, she said, how did you come up with these 12 questions in this order? They just like unfold a person's story. And I, I half jokingly said to her 15 minutes and 35 years, because these are the questions I have been asking families at what rabbis and all clergy call an intake. Yeah a day or two before the funeral of their loved one. So I can get my arms around their loved one's story, the truths of their loved one's life. Yeah. So I can help them get their arms around it. I can get my arms around it. And then we can, we can tell the story yeah. in all of its complexity and power. And everyone's life is interesting. Everyone. everyone. Oh, if you yeah. ask the right questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, at, you know, interestingly enough, the, the, the largest demographic that's buying this book are millennials. And I didn't expect that. But I think the reason is they are trying to figure out their path. Yeah. And these questions, what is love? Yeah. Um, what do you regret most? What do you regret? What, how do you want to be remembered? When's right? the time led by your heart? I love that. Yeah. When did you think from the heart? All of these questions are not about dying. They're about living. You know, because you're an expert, that death is really the only teacher of life. Yeah. yeah. There is no other teacher. Yeah. Right. That Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. Yeah. I mean. And it's it, true. It is really true. It is right? really true. Ecclesiastes, all rivers run to the sea. We all end up in the same place. Yeah. So how do we learn from each other along the way? Right. And the other reason I wrote the book is 
that I started thinking about what is the last thing, the final word most people's loved ones hear from them when they're gone. The last thing most of us ever hear from our loved ones when we're gone is a legalese document written by someone who barely knew them. And it is entirely about who gets what and when and how much. It's all about the material, as if the material will somehow express the emotional and the spiritual, which I say to people is like handing your loved ones a picture of food. It will not sustain you. It will not nourish them. It will not comfort them. What do I really cherish of my father's? Yeah. Not one single material thing. Nothing. One of the saddest memories of my life is going down into the basement of my parents' townhouse in Minneapolis after my dad died and seeing virtually all of his stuff in a heap on the basement floor. Nobody wanted it. Yeah. Goodwill didn't even want some of it. It's crap. Nobody wants your crap. And that's not what people are carrying forward, right? What they're carrying forward, your qualities, your values, your stories, your experiences. If if they've been- If you articulate it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? If you shared it, they'll tell your story, but only if they've heard your story. And this book is an attempt to help people leave behind for their loved ones what their loved ones really will cherish and want and need, which is their love, their wisdom, their values, their life lessons. My father had the perfect Yiddish expression for every situation, mostly a double entendre that was really filthy because that was him. <laughs> but that I carry that with me. My father was uneducated. He he my mom and dad got married at 17 and 18. They had five kids before they were 30. Neither went to college. And but my father was a freaking professor of the human experience. Yeah. Through Yiddishisms. And I carry that with me. Yeah. And I and every time I hear a Hank Williams song, I want to cry. Mm-hmm. And and every time I wipe my plate clean with that piece of bread, like not a molecule of sauce left yeah. on that. Don't plate. leave it behind. Yeah. No, that's my dad. Don't waste anything. Every time I get out of the car and go back into the house to turn off the lights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because we don't work for the electric company. <laughs> <laughs> that's my dad. Yeah. Okay. Um, Every time I throw away a piece of dental floss, my father was so, we were not poor, but we lived like we were poor. My father reused his dental floss, Lisa. Okay. Because it was a perfectly good piece. Sorry, dentists out there. (laughs) When I throw away my dental floss in the morning, I said, sorry, dad. Sorry, dad. (laughs) I'm doing it different. I'm doing it different. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so if you go through the book and you answer these yeah. questions, you have everything you need to tell your story. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. 
When we come back, Rabbi Leader explains that collecting these answers to leave a story for your loved ones when you're gone isn't just a gift to them. It's actually a gift you're giving yourself. Are you looking for more grief support in your life? Do you want a friendly and understanding voice in your inbox? Maybe some behind-the-scenes scoop on this show, information about the book that I'm writing coming out in 2024, or even thoughts on what I'm currently reading? Would you like to know about the services I offer? Well, I've got you covered. Sign up for the not-so-regular newsletter today by visiting lisakiefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. Why do I call it not so regular? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. Friends, I absolutely love hosting this podcast. And while it's central to my work as a grief activist and my mission to create a more grief literate culture, Did you know that I also have the great fortune to show up in other places too? I write about grief in various places, including my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, published by UT Press coming in 2024. But I also serve as adjunct professor of loss and grief at the University of Texas, Austin. Also, organizations across the country invite me to help them create grief smart workplaces as a keynote speaker for their significant events, or to deliver workshops. You know what's really cool? So many of these invitations have largely come from listeners like you. So if you're looking to bring grief education, awareness, literacy, or support to your workplace or event, drop me a note. Visit www.lisakiefoffer.com. Now, I want to make one more point, and then we can get to the questions if you... No, you're good. Yeah, yeah, good. This um, ethical will, this legacy letter, this this sharing of your story is not only for your loved ones when you're gone. Yeah. It's also for you. Yeah. Because what it is, is an MRI of your inner life. Yeah. And then you get to hold that MRI up to the light. You go through this book, you answer these questions, and then you hold those answers up to the light and you say to yourself, this is what I say my truth is. Yeah. Am I living Living it? it. Yeah. Or is my life mostly kabuki? Yeah. And that, I think, is the most important question a person can ask. Am I real? Am I authentic? Am I living my In alignment truth. with my values. Am I, are am my I walking my talk? Valued, are my professed values and my lived values aligned? None of us are totally aligned. We're all human. Yeah. And they change and they evolve. And yeah. Yeah. But fundamentally, the unhappiest people I know are people whose professed values and lived values are divergent. And that is a, in other words, they're really leading a double life. And that is a very painful way to live. It is. That is that is imposter syndrome on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. The happiest people I know are people who are pretty well aligned. Like they live the way they talk. Yeah. 
And, and I, I'm working toward that every day and it is not easy. And this book can be a guide. Oh, absolutely. I think to your point, so many amazing points you made there. One is this isn't just, we can think about this process of a legacy letter of ethical will, not just as a gift to our brother, sister, mother, children, whoever survives us, but really as a, as a, as an orienting map to, and the opportunity for us to figure out how is it, how is it that we're going to live with whatever life, you know, we have left. And yes, I agree with you too, of when I used to be a more traditional therapist, now I do different work more as a, a grief guide, but much of what I saw, even when people were presenting with bipolar and depression and anxiety, whatever was really part of what my probing was is, you know, are you trying to get yourself to live in a way that is not in alignment with what you value kind of your, your values, not like George W. Bush values, family, you know, but just values. And I think um, it's hard to step into that. It's like, how do you even begin to have that conversation? And that is what I really appreciate about your book is this is a way in for us to start to really think about how we are walking through this world and um, what those lessons are. And I've already started mine. You inspired oh, me to start mine. As good. I said, I'm 50, almost two. I have a 19 year old daughter. Um, I wish, you know, we didn't know my husband was sick before he died. So, and he was so young, we were young. We didn't do that, but I definitely, and I'm not planning on going anywhere, but I, this has been an opportunity for something. No, I'm not. I'm doing, I mean, I am currently going through breast cancer treatment. So that definitely has raised the stakes of my awareness of my own, um, you know, mortality as always um, these kind of events do, but yes, I do that. So I'm, I'm going to walk the walk and I'll probably share it in an essay or something. And I'll, I'll let you know what, what I've discovered, but I loved the format. I want to dive into some of the questions and, and lead, leave some of the things, but I did really appreciate the format of the book too. As you just indicated, you sort of helped us understand sort of where the ethical will, the legacy letter came from sort of the history of that. But then you did this really beautiful dance of sharing e your own answers to these questions, kind of modeling your own vulnerability, your own authenticity, um, sort of bringing in sort of spiritual teachings as well as they applied. But then this collection of 40 people, which you can tell from the answers, have very different, you know, lived experiences. It was so nice to read through, you know, sort of, so each chapter, for those who haven't read it yet, but read it, y'all, um, they have each question you share, and then you invite these folks to sort of share theirs, uh, their perspectives or what their sort of answers were. And I loved how different they were, but that meant everyone could see themselves in somebody's answer. Yeah. And, and what was interesting to me was the other side of that coin, which is what were the common denominators to the yes. human experience? Yeah. Whether, whether you were uh, someone with very little money who changes diapers at an adult care facility yeah, yeah. or a billionaire yeah. or young, old, middle-aged, uh, Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, atheist. The differences are fascinating. Yeah. And so are so the commonalities. A hundred percent. And you touched on that so beautifully there. There were some things, especially when I think about things around regrets or things about leading by the heart, that there are different nuances because of people's circumstances, but that there are really sort of truisms about yeah. the human experience. That's right. You know, that goes through. And to the point of this book, or the, to the point of um, 
the importance of writing a legacy letter and leaving words both for yourself, but also for those who behind. I wanted to read a passage, if you don't mind, from your book that I just kind of got me a little bit. Um, and I might mispronounce the Hebrew word, even though I'm the child of a survivor of the Holocaust. We did not, I, I did not learn my Hebrew words. Mm. But you said the word for word in Hebrew and the word for thing in Hebrew are the same word. Davar, maybe. Davar. Davar. To me, this is a very deep spiritual point. Words have heft and weight. They are concrete and material as any thing will ever own or leave behind. So let us leave words for those we love in order that we may journey with them along after we are gone. And let it not take imminent death for us to find those words and craft a more meaningful legacy. I mean, if that isn't the inspiration to do something like this, I don't know what is. It is a very powerful psycholinguistic point that that in Hebrew, you cannot differentiate yeah. between word and item, thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know... Um, you know that um, my Angelou quote, people won't remember what you said. They'll remember how you made them feel. Yes. I think that's bullshit. Okay. Tell me. Because I think people feel the way they feel about you because of what you did or did not say mm. to them. Mm. Did you make a promise and not keep it? Did you uplift them? Yeah. Did you insult them? I think she's got it backwards. And I think she's amazing, but I think she's wrong about that. Interesting. People do remember what you said, and that determines how they feel they about feel. you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and um, words ultimately are the m most eternal thing we have. Absolutely. I think it's Gregory Orr, the poet, he says, words make worlds. Yes. And it's like Muriel Ruckheiser's. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. That, that the world is not made up of atoms. It's made up of stories. Stories. Yeah. I mean, we are storytelling um, creatures yeah. and grief and, and a, a devastating loss is this is the grief metaphor I use for years and years and years is, you know, the shredding of our manuscript. And then grief is sort of the journey we're on as we're rewriting and living into this emerging story. And so I just appreciated you calling out that linguistic point, because I think it's just a reminder why, if you're ever feeling doubt about why do I need to ask the questions? Why do I need to leave the story? Why do I need to communicate? It's because this is what we leave behind when this shell, you know, is gone. So you have these 12 questions, which I'm sure were distilled down over the years from maybe many other iterations of questions. Anything you want to note or share with us about how you made it to these 12? I mean, I can read them. What do you regret? When was the time you led with your heart? What makes you happy? What was your biggest failure? What got you through your greatest challenge? What is a good person? That was an interesting one. What is love? Have you ever cut someone out of your life? How do you want to be remembered? What is good advice? What will your epitaph say? And what will your final blessing be? How, tell me a little, is what, did one of those jump out at you? Was it a struggle to make it 12? How, I'm telling you 15 minutes, 15 minutes. Yeah. It just, just kind of came into, fell and, into And place. in that order. Interesting. I love it. And, and because this is how I have been orchestrating or conducting 
Yeah. These family conversations in the aftermath of the death of a loved one for so many years. And, and listen, I didn't start my career with those 12 questions yeah. in that order. But over time, I started to learn how do we, how do we enable this person's truth to blossom in, in time-lapse photography? Yeah. yeah. In an hour or two, how do we allow that blossom to, to emerge and with its thorns? And, and, and it's, and it's fungus and it's disease and it's beauty. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a healing power to, of storytelling to, to what my, a former. That's why funerals make us feel better. We, we dread them. Yeah. And, and I wish there was a way I could convince people before the funeral that they're actually going to feel a little better after the funeral. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because the person's story is alive and therefore in a way, we are alive. Yeah. They are alive. Yeah. And it's not a, a total loss. We it's get not a chance to feel like we're carrying them with, we get to carry a piece of them with us in that. I also think ritual and community is important. Well, of, I was just, course. you're exactly right. Others carry it too. Yeah. It makes me so... Um, Happy is too small a word. It is so fulfilling and meaningful. When I meet someone who knew my dad and they tell me a story about I know. my dad. Yeah. It, yeah. it just, it fills my heart. Yeah. I think the scariest thing is when you feel like it's, it's only on you to carry the memory of someone forward. And I feel that as the years have gone on since my husband's death. You want to know something? Yeah. It's a little bit dark, but the difference when I'm officiating at a funeral, the difference when it's an only child who's grieving yeah. versus siblings who are grieving yeah. is palpable. Yeah. It, it is exponentially more difficult, sadder, more painful yeah. for an only child. Yeah. We want to feel this shared story story and that we're not, you know, sort of losing it alone and carrying it alone. And yeah. Yeah. Because, and, and you may feel this as, as someone who's, whose husband died, which is that you lose half your memory. Oh, more than half. He was the memory keeper of our relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the only other person on earth who knew about that little pizza place down that alley where you went when you were in Florence. Yeah. The only other person who was at that recital for your daughter when she was five, the only other person who knew that yeah. and experienced that when that person is gone, it it's an added measure of, of sadness and, yeah. and, and, and loneliness. And it, it's very painful. Very. It's part of the secondary losses that we experience when we lose a person. There's so many, of course, that we experience, but that is one I've talked about quite a bit. Um, and in addition to the fact that he was just a good, he had an annoying capacity to have like an exquisite memory. And I'd be like, did we even go to the place? And he was like, he was right yeah, there was like, he, yeah, he was like, there was blue walls and there's curtains and the, <laughs> the guy said this. And I'm like, okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, so I think again, to your point, part of what part of I think where we suffer in our grief, where where the sadness and the heaviness and the and the isolation or the othering that we experience in our grief is when we can't sort of be in a collective story. We can't share stories. It's also the reason I always say to people, um, please bring up the name. Please, you know, we have this one of the many grief beliefs that we erroneously learned is that you shouldn't say the person's name because you're going to make the person sad, which is ridiculous because the person is already thinking of their lost loved one. Now they just feel like I'm the only one remembering them. You know, the the sages were very wise. um, And and the rabbis mandated, there are all these prescribed behaviors for the period of mourning after the death of a loved one. There are prescribed behaviors for the first three days, the first seven days, the first 30 days, the first 11 months, and then every year thereafter. Yeah. And one of them is you are not allowed to distract the person from her grief. Yeah. You are not allowed to approach Lisa after her husband has died and say, hey, um, I got this great new recipe for whatever, you know, or yeah. hey, let's, let's go to the mall next week when you're feeling up to it. Or, you know, you, you have to engage in the matters of the heart. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you're exactly right. Um, I think in a sense, my parents somehow knew that by exposing me at a young age to, to, to loss that, yeah. that you don't teach children to run from people who are suffering. Yeah. You, yeah. you teach them to, uh, to empathize. And, yeah. and that's so powerful. You know, there's this beautiful phrase in the Talmud. I won't walk you through the whole story, but the punchline is the prisoner cannot free himself. I, yeah, I remember that from this book and it's about prisoner. That is such a powerful idea. Yeah. The prisoner cannot free himself. One of the things that death taught me was the, well, and I learned it several years before also when I was in a very, uh, very dangerous car accident and I had to have spinal surgery and I was in just horrible pain. I learned then very quickly that no one suffers pain better alone. No one. No. In fact, I would argue that's what, when you are alone, you are exacerbating the suffering, you know, that's that's where the unnecessary suffering is. It's the feeling of abandonment and isolation. Yeah. More so than the physical pain yeah. that is so damn depressing. So it, the humility of death causes us to reach out. Yeah. And in that humility, we're actually someone reaches back and lifts us from our suffering. And it's so beautiful. And then so- later you become that someone, which is what you have done. Yeah. When we come back, Rabbi Leader reminds us that when someone's world has fallen out beneath them, the best thing we can do is show up as our authentic selves. That means if you're funny, be funny. If you like to cook, bring food. The bottom line, be yourself. And no matter what, make sure you walk through that door. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch Podcast. I am so fortunate to have so many incredible guests coming your way still this season. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. 
After the show, head over to Apple Podcast or your favorite platform and hit the subscribe button. Oh, and while you're there, if you love the show, please leave a rating and write a review. Also, a simple and meaningful gesture of grief support would be sharing this show with someone in your life who might need it too. If you do it on social media, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW or use the hashtag grief is a sneaky bitch. Did you know you can now get all kinds of grief is a sneaky bitch merch from teas and hoodies to journals, coffee mugs, and stickers. You can find it in my grief happens shop. In fact, I love that people have started sharing their pictures with me. So if you pick something up, make sure to take a selfie and tag me on social media at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'll be adding new content to the shop monthly. Next up is a series of merchandise I'm calling Cancer Can Fuck All the Way Off. Shop now for your own Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast merch by visiting www.lisakefauver.com today. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. And it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, we have to, you know, having a hard, I always say having a hard thing happens, happen to you doesn't make you someone who has the capacity for deep empathy and joy and whatever. Having something hard happen to you and you turning to face it gives you the capacity to turn around and do that, I think, for someone else. And that's another. So here's the Yiddish aphorism. When you must, you can. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And we can turn towards people, as you say, not in a distraction. It is not our job to fix them. It is our job to witness them, to accompany them, to show up. I say my grief motto is show up, shut up and listen, and then keep showing up. That's my, yeah. I say show up and be yourself. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's the other thing people, again, I think again, with all well, mostly well intentions people, because they haven't practice this because they haven't been in touch with their own grief. They think there's some prescription for showing up and they have to be either very serious or they have to be emotional or they have to come with the solution. So they are so in their own head trying to be this model of grief support that what that really person needs is we feel alien. I will speak for myself and for those that I've worked with over the years, we feel very alien to the world. I felt like, you know, just, I didn't recognize myself. And so I need somebody who I recognize, who recognizes me to show me themselves. So exactly, exactly. Because that is the only thing that assures you the bottom hasn't fallen out of the world. Right. Which it already felt like it did. But then when people are showing up in these ways that are inauthentic or not showing up, because sometimes people get so worried about saying the wrong thing, they just don't say anything at all. Um, which is, you are so right. And you know, even after all these years, I've been a rabbi for, I'm in my 37th year now. When I am standing in the hallway at the hospital, before I walk in that room, when I'm standing on a front doorstep, before I walk into that house, I don't know what I'm going to say. No. All I know is I need to walk in. I need to walk through that door and be Steve. Yeah. I know how to do that. Everyone knows how to do that. This I really appreciate you bringing this up because people just get so wrestled. And even though I do this for a living and you might experience this too, I do still sometimes kind of get caught up in the, you know, like for a second, I might get up and then I have to remind myself like what they deserve most is for me to actually be present and be a witness 
Yeah. And to be myself yes. and their, for their presence. And that's it. That's, that's If, that's if a you're gift. a joker, joke. If you're a feeder, feed. If you're an errand runner, run errands. If you're a hugger, hug. You know, if you're the strong, yeah. silent type, sit down and shut up. It's just be yourself because that's what people need. Yeah. They don't need some bad acting job when their heart is broken. Yeah. They and also they need their friend. And also you're so in your own, you carry your own energy. So then your embodied energy is going to spill into the room and you're so in your own head. You can't possibly be open to somebody's and to be the kind of support you actually want to be when you're in your own, I got to say the right thing. I got to act this way. That's I got to right. do the thing. You know, you're just not right. actually present. That's and right. That's almost, I've, I mean, you might have experiences too. I mostly had a lovely people, although, you know, it was just sort of a shock. It was like, we were all 40, you know, couples. And then it was like seven couples and Lisa. And so, you know, nobody had really experienced, nobody had experienced the loss of a spouse. It was a shock. So mostly I had amazing people who figured out how to show up as themselves. But I found it's almost, it is to me worse it's better if you didn't show up than if you show up in that kind of inauthentic fixing kind of solution or playing some right. kind of caricature. That's harmful in my opinion. That's right. That's right. And people don't realize that. Don't put on a show. Be real. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that vulnerability is such an important um, aspect both for us, the grievers, having to learn how to be just a walking open wound in the world as we move through our grief, but also it's the lesson or whatever to the people who are showing up for us that your own vulnerability, you know, is, is as important too. And, and that reminds me. Acknowledge the, I don't think horribleness is a word, but I'm going to use it. The horrible, horribleness yeah. of the situation. Yeah. You know, I'll tell yeah. you a joke that I sometimes tell people when they're really in that muck, assuming I have the right relationship with them. Yeah. So, you know, if I had, if I had been your rabbi at the time, yeah. at some point I would have said to you, Lisa, you want to hear a joke about what you're dealing with? Cause I like to teach through jokes. Yeah. And you would have probably have said, yes, go ahead, rabbi. Yeah. yeah. I know you like that. So the Jewish pessimist says, oh my God. Things could not be worse. And the Jewish optimist says, of course they could. <laughs> right? There you go. Yeah. And let's talk about laughter for a second. Oh, yes, please. Here's what I've learned. When someone laughs, whether they realize it or not, yeah. they have decided to survive. Yeah. When I see, when I meet with the family and somebody cracks a joke and everybody laughs about the person, yeah, the dental floss or whatever it is, yeah, they've decided to survive, yeah, because that is a is a tiny spark in the darkness. It is I and 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 it and and it means we're still here. So I I if you're like, don't be afraid to, if you're a joker, joke, you know, it, yeah. it, um, and, and obviously there's, you have to be pretty deft. Yeah, like, of course. I, yeah. I wouldn't not, recommend it. Don't do a stand-up show, you know. And yeah. yeah. So, and, and if you're an amateur, don't try it. 
Yeah. But if that is your way, I always go for a laugh in the eulogy because everyone, everyone has something quirky, idiosyncratic and funny about them. Everyone. Yeah. And I think it's a spark in the darkness. I think it's a reminder of our humanity because, yes. you know, the, the depth. But I also think, you know, I recently interviewed um, Cindy Spiegel, who wrote Microjoys, and she and I were talking about this notion, too. We talked about humor, among other things, other other things uh, that are sort of a bomb when we're going through grief, is that we we always need respite from the weight of our grief. Yes. Whether that starts at the eulogy, you know, at the funeral service, or that's during Shiva, or that's 12 years down the road, whatever it is, we need respite. We can't carry, you have to set it down sometimes. Well, you know what? Now, this may sound, this is paradoxical, but sometimes, at least for me, the respite comes from leaning more into the loss. Sometimes it does. Right? Like, I think, oh. I think, I think really giving myself permission to ugly cry, as I call it. I feel that is what I needed. So I do right. think so. I think there's respite. I think we tend, because we like to do binary in this culture anyways, I would say Western cultures, is we tend to like think we either have to sort of be in it, all in it, sad, angry, despondent, you know, bedridden, or we have to suck it up, you know, by our bootstraps. And I think the truth is we have to sort of move back and forth in this nonlinear well, fashion between so you, all of them. You've hit on something that was, you know, real insights are very rare. And I, I don't have many. But one that I did achieve was this idea that death and therefore life is essentially about the dichotomous tension of dualities. And that life is lived on that high wire supported by the tension of dualities. Yeah. So for example, memory, you know, rabbis are full of platitudes about memory. You know, may her memory be a blessing, you know, he'll live on in your memory. And that's all true. Yes. Memory is beautiful, yeah. but it, it, but it also really really hurts. Yeah. It's both. Both and. It's not one or the other. Yeah. It's both. It's and they're intent there there there's a tension between them. Yeah. There's a duality there. Now, this is true of memory, this is true true of love. Um this is true of you know our our greatest gifts, our also our greatest curses. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be doing and, this, which is incredible if I had not been through what I had been through. Yeah. I mean, we all, and it's not worth it. You'd rather have him back. I would rather have him back. And but be, you don't have that choice, right? I always say, if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty handed. Yeah. And it's better not to go through gift. Hell. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. All things being equal, I would have taken back in a heartbeat. And yeah. I mean, that's this tattoo that I have. I don't know if you happen to be watching, but I'll just show you, Steve, for those who are Yeah, I can see it. This black is, you know, represents in memoriam, this black band, right? And then it goes into the ampersand. And then it goes into these flowers, some of which are filled in and some of which aren't. The filled in ones are the life lived and the empty flowers represent both the life interrupted and the life yet to live. And this is just my daily reminder of the both and of life right. and how much I savor and appreciate 
most days, not always great at it. You know, sometimes I'm wallowing in my whatever, but how much I really do appreciate that those tensions teach me something about how to be, how to live back to where we started, how to live in alignment with my values. I think they're the actual fuel of life itself. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. And now here's like the deeper point, which took me into my 60s to grasp. A duality definitionally is irreconcilable. Right? Accepting, accepting the irreconcilable nature of a duality yeah. for me yeah. is a reconciliation. Yeah. There's a piece to it. There's a piece that comes from that acceptance. There's a piece from knowing, remembering my dad will always be beautiful and will always be painful. There's a piece in, in embracing that irreconcilable difference. I think that's such an important point, Steve, because I think part of what Part of what we, you know, we are creatures of storytelling. We humans, that's as you know, rooted in our neurobiology, and we seek so desperately understanding, you know, air quotes, understanding clarity. And I think so much, some of our suffering is trying to make sense of things that just aren't. I mean, a tragic loss is a tragic loss. There's no, we're not making meaning of, you know, the loss. I just recently interviewed a woman who, you know, whose child was murdered. She's not going to make sense of that loss. It's the accepting that, you know, the dark and the light happen. And it's that's right. the invitation because, then to live from that. Yeah. Because why? There is no why. Yeah. It's a cul-de-sac. And you just go around and around and around. Yeah. You know, so people, this was a great compliment, really. Um, Harold Kushner's book came out 40 years ago. And a lot of people said, Steve, you're like, your last two books are Kushner-like. And to me, that's just... <laughs> and they say, you know, that book he wrote, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, amazing. And I say to them, actually, I've never heard of that book. So what do you mean you haven't heard of that book? I said, well, that's not what Harold Kushner's book was called. His book was called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Yes. No one can write a book called Why Bad Why? Things Happen no. to Good People. I mean, they could, but it's just full of BS. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So the, some of these things, it, it has, mo so many things in life have, are, it's much more productive. What I do in my work yeah. very often therapeutically is I try to move people from the why to the what and, 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 and how, yeah. what given then that this happened, am I going to do with my life and this experience? How am I going to live going forward? How am I going to fill in the color of those yeah. uncolored flowers yeah. in my life? Yeah. That is productive. That is a reconciliation with what cannot be reconciled. Yeah. And, that. and that's the best we can do. And by the way, this is why I started the book um, for you when I'm gone with the question about regret. Yeah. Because as much as people think regret is about the past, it's not. When people come to me to, to sit on what I call the couch of tears in my office mm. about some regret, the first thing I say to them, 
because I'm not a long-term therapist, you know, I generally refer people with real, with who need it because I don't have the time or the expertise, but I'm a triage therapist. Yeah. Most clergy are, most people come to clergy first because it's safe. Yeah. And you don't have to be mentally ill to talk to your rabbi or your minister or your priest. Yeah. The first Which, thing by I the say, way, you don't need to be mentally ill to talk to a therapist. We need to debunk that. But, but yes, I, I get the point. Of course. That's of the course. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing I say to people is, Lisa, personally, I have given up all hope of a better past. What can we make of this regret to ennoble your future? Exactly. Only in service of how will you live going forward? Yeah. 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 I think that's so profoundly important um, because there's a real risk. So many people get into that rumination cycle, which is really avoidance of living into the future. Um, and, um, but I like the way you phrase that, that you've given up all, I've hope. given up all hope, all hope better past. past. It's a very I, quick and effective push forward. Yeah. 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 Because it's only in the lessons that we learn. I mean, that's sort of what your whole book is really. It's, I mean, you've this, you're creating a gift for yourself and those you leave behind these questions. And for you and I'm gone do kind of really just that is like how, what wisdom do you have for yourself as you get to have however many years you have left in this world? And then what gifts do you want to offer to the people behind so that they can then navigate their life with the wisdom that you've left them, both the sort of things that you savored, the way you lived in alignment, and sometimes the ways that you would have done it differently. But either way, um, we're, it's not about sort of fixing the past or rewriting the past. It's about taking yeah. those lessons. Yeah, exactly. But boy, do we try. I mean, you know, like we try. My mother, <laughs> I always say my mother, my mother's uh, way of being in the world is forgive and remind. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Jewish mother, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Forgive and remind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a healthy way to live. No, no, exactly. And sort of how do we walk forward? Any, I mean, I, I don't know how an hour went by already, but it did because you're charming and this is a fascinating book. I can't wait for folks to get it. But any else, anything else you want to share with listeners or is there any one story or one excerpt that like comes to mind about one of the 40 people you interviewed that you want to leave us with? Well, when the book launched, I was asked one of those like got you journalist questions by an interviewer. She said, if you had to summarize the book in two words, what would they be? Oh, okay. So an annoying question, but they immediately came to me, the two words and the two words were and are don't wait. When is it too soon to share your story, your experience, your wisdom, your love with the people you care about? When is that too soon? When is it too late? Well, there's only one moment at which it's too late. Yeah. And and by the way, it doesn't necessarily mean death. Yeah. I had no idea that my last conversation with my father was my last conversation with my father. Right. And most of us don't. Because he had Alzheimer's and one visit back home from Los Angeles to Minneapolis, 
he, we could speak with each other and he could understand and respond. Yeah. Two months later on my next visit, he really never spoke again. Yeah. So don't wait. Don't wait. I love that. I love that. And also, I just hate to step on your don't wait because I think that's a beautiful message. But one of the things you shared you did that I think is really important too is this isn't even necessarily a one-time thing. Oh, no. Right? So as you your life evolves, if you, I think you said you wrote it kind of when you were 50 and then you did one, you updated I, I it when you were 60. I wrote an ethical will to my kids when I was 40. Okay. And I wrote one when I was 60. Yeah. They're very different. I'm very different. My kids are very different. The world is very different. Right. And um, it, it's, it should ideally be an evolving work of art. Because we're evolving. Because we're an evolving work of art. Yeah. I love that. We are an evolving work of art. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. What a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. I really... I, I admire you and your work and uh, lots of luck on your new book that's coming out this spring. Yeah, um, and and I, I hope our paths cross IRL someday. I hope so too. I hope so too. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Don't forget, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the show so you're notified immediately when the next episode drops. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>